In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here back at the True Life Podcast with the one and only Richard Grove, a forensic historian, autonomy navigator, entrepreneur, whistleblower, reader of books, incredible individual, the one and only Richard Grove. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing well, George, but I got to correct you. There's another Richard Grove out there who wrote books for the British Empire in ecology and the green agenda, and I am not him. And his Wikipedia page used to have my picture which made it look like I went to Cambridge and Oxford or whatever. So there, are, there is another Richard Grove who is uh, notorious in the world, but I'm the one who is the forensic historian and talks about liberty and philosophy all the time. Seems like a weird parallel between Alex Jones and Hicks over here going, I didn't know this, Richard Grove. I didn't know that there was this imposter. <laughs> and it, it's kind of uncanny, this guy that knows all this stuff about the Anglo-American establishment, Carol Quigley. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, right on. Well, I thought we'd begin at the beginning, and I, I know your time is somewhat limited, and, and there's so much I want to get into. So maybe you could give a background, you know, a, a quick background of, of what led you into this world of intrigue and whistleblowing and corruption and maybe self-determination. Um, naivete <laughs> and growing up in Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up in a small town where everybody was honest and hardworking and had good work ethic. And I, my connection with the outside world was watching TV and movies like a lot of other people. And I went through university and then I went off to the big city to make my fortune like I thought I was supposed to. And then I ran into a whole bunch of stuff they don't tell you about in school. And I started asking questions and finding answers. And the, 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 the interesting tangent within that like standard story of what we all try to grow up and do in life is that I got distracted in college because I was going for... Well, first, uh, my my access to higher Ivy League colleges and stuff like was the cost. So I ended up going to a state college in Pennsylvania called Pennsylvania State University, not a place I ever liked to reference or 
brag about even back before the scandals. Like I wasn't proud of it. I thought I could have done better, but I was limited by money. And while I was going through the education, I already understood it wasn't going to be done in four years. It was going to take five years. I knew that by year two. So I started looking for other options and I saw an offer to get into an entrepreneurial franchise where they would teach you how to do business and teach you how to run your own business and hire people, fire people, get bit, like get the marketing, do the sales, uh, customer service, all these great things, training of your employees. And I started participating in that during college. And that little franchise business made me really good money during the summer. I got to uh, work with my brother and my friends and have a great time. But I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So when I graduated and I got this degree, I didn't really know what I was going to do with this upcoming degree. And I ended up going and getting a job in the software industry, applying my entrepreneurism and sales and customer service and knowing how to market and all this stuff. Uh, that turned out to be a very rare skill set. Nobody was being trained for through colleges. And I went into um, a, a, a startup software company that had just gone public. They had like 300 people. And I kicked ass. And I was like, oh, this is... And I was making, I was making really good money and, um, upwardly mobile all of a sudden, not because of my college degree, but because I knew how to proverbially, uh, proverbially like knock on a door, do a cold call or go and find business for my employer. Right. So I had a great career. I worked in the high tech software industry, uh, for six years. I had, uh, accounts in Silicon Valley. I had accounts in New York city, the biggest financial services company, insurance companies in the world. I handled a lot of defense contractors along the way too. There was like a couple companies where it's like Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin. They're just always ordering database software. Right. right. So <clears throat> applying those skills, I thought I was, thought I was living the dream, man. I was, I was in New York city at the high time of New York city. Cause it's awful now like the last 20 years, it's just gone downhill. But at the turn of the century, right before 9-11, I was the golden age. And it was really a remarkable experience of naivete and how far that can carry you with work ethic and hard work before it runs into people doing ill business outside of integrity. And then eventually my career ended. I retired from corporate world because I became a whistleblower and because of uh, the nature of that whistleblowing, um, persona non grata, none of those companies would ever do business with me again. Uh, as soon as I blew the whistle, like American Express called and they like pulled my account. It was like, it's like cancellation today. Right. Only it was much more subtle back then. And it didn't happen to that many people. But the whistleblower uh, myth in this country is if you see wrongdoing, right. there are laws and there are protections and there are safety nets and you're not going to lose your career. Your family's not going to get threatened, all this stuff, right? There's protection, but that doesn't exist. And then when I tried to report that to the news and media, people like Lowell Bergman for PBS, like very respected journalists, they weren't, they couldn't print it, even though he could verify that this is a real thing. And it happened. The people involved were too powerful and it's a conflict of interest for them to, to put it out to the public and protect people. So then I started to take a step back and say, why am I contributing all of my uh, mental energy and talent? Because what I did was things that these people can't do for themselves. It's a company, they have software, but they don't know how to find the client, cut the deal, move the software, get paid. That was what I knew how to do. And I got increasingly good. And I went from job to job to job where they would like almost double my pay each time. Every year and a half, I was like, another job, another apartment, another move, another upwardly mobile situation until somebody else said, Hey, we'll pay you more over here. So I really, <clears throat> it's a, 
it was a mixed blessing, right? Because yeah. at the time, it's like I lost my apartment, my cars. I had to move out of the city. It was like as soon as you blow the whistle. And it took me some time to recover from that. I went through court for, I don't know, three or four years. And that also taught me a, a really good lesson about the legal system and wars of attrition with people who have billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, the law firm I was up against is a multi-billion law, dollar law firm called Skadden Arps. And they defended the United States government and Iran Contra and BCCI and everything in Whitney Webb's books. basically. Yeah. And the employer I was suing, EMC Corporation, now owned by Dell, they used to be the hardware supplier to like the NSA. They did a lot of government work. The owner of it, um, who passed away, is a guy, guy named Egan. He was the ambassador to Ireland for the United States and Dick Cheney's biggest fundraiser when I blew the whistle on these guys. And Bush was in office. So it was like, I could have known better. I should have known better. People probably told me, hey, there's this isn't the smart move. Yeah. But it's not because they knew. It's just because they were pussies. Okay? Right. Let's we'll just put, put it that way. So I wanted to find out. I I, <laughs> I, uh, I poked the bear a little bit. I saw, okay, this is what's going on. And then I spent probably 10 years reading. I wanted to know, has anyone encountered these extra governmental forces, these non-governmental forces that are out there, top down? And who's written about these things? And I found people like Anthony Sutton and John Taylor Gatto and Carol Quigley and Charlotte Iserbeet and Bertrand Russell and a whole bunch of other characters along the way. And I really never read for personal edification growing up other than what was assigned to me. And I could do that. That's easy. Schoolwork was always easy, that sort of stuff. It wasn't very challenging. But the new challenge was, hey, you thought you were upwardly mobile. You took your skill set into the market. I made a million dollars before I was 30. That was one of my goals with my skill set, right. right? Something I teach people today. So I did that, but then I ran into all these things and it's like, none of this stuff matters. If you can't answer like, who's running the world? How does this stuff work? How do I get non-contradictory consequences out of my actions? Because too many people are putting in actions and getting you know, contradictory responses and they don't understand, but it's set up. We're set up. It's a rigged game. Now that's an interesting thing. Now it had my interest. Now I had a challenge. Who Who's in charge of this place? What is uh, obedience to authority? How have they leveraged Skinner and Pavlov and all these things against the people? Who is Bernays? Who is Lipman? All these things started, you know, getting onto my radar. Now, I blew the whistle in 2003. I was in court 2004 to 2006. I encountered John Taylor Gatto's Underground History of American Education in 2004. It's a big book. Let me grab it here. Yeah, please. If I can get it without knocking stuff, <laughs> I am knocking stuff over, but it's, it's, it's off camera, so you won't see it. All right, so let's just do this. So I got this, I call this the big book because it's, it's a huge book. Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gatto. And if I hold it up, it's like, it's a big coffee table size book, quite, quite lengthy, small print, but uh, chapter seven, the Prussian education system. I was like, mm. Mm, this is interesting. And then there's the cult of scientific management here coming up in chapter nine. It tells you all about how these guys used uh, scientism. Let me straighten that out for you. Yeah. Right. Well so they use scientism and uh, there's a whole Frederick Taylor, Taylorism, the time and motion studies. So I was fascinated by this. But in 2004, I couldn't understand what he's saying because I was a function of this system. I So it kind of bounced off me, but I had I had it. Then I went off. I discovered Sutton. Uh, Quigley, and they brought together 
first for for Sutton. If you guys don't know who Anthony C. Sutton was, he was a professor, um, and then he worked at the Hoover Institute for P World Peace, and he wrote some books. And the first three books he wrote were uh, Western Trilaterals or no, no, no. So that's seventy six. This is okay. prior to that. So it was like Soviet development and Western technology. It's a three volume technical set that he wrote. And basically what he figured out was that the Western banks that, that fought against communism funded communism in the first place to fight against it. And he's like, this is weird. So they're very technical. Not many people know about those three. Then he wrote the three, which I call his trilogy, Wall Street and Hitler, Wall Street and FDR, Wall Street in the Bolshevik Revolution. And what that shows is Marx, Lenin, not Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, all these guys were positioned by bankers to create the Soviet project, to create the Nazi experiment, and to have America rise up against it on behalf of Britain, which there is a longstanding plan under Cecil Rhodes since 1902 to bring America back into the British Empire. And then they went by about a step-by-step, -step, how do we get America back into the British Empire? And that's the story of the 20th century. So Gatto kind of, he captures that from a schooling, you know, the turn, the transmutation of education into schooling, taking out free will, making it indoctrination and not based on passion based observations and inquiry. But he doesn't have the geopolitical aspect. So Sutton now paints out these Western banks had created the Nazis, the Soviets, the whole 20th century then is like a corruption of bankers precipitating down through politics and culture. So that's interesting. And then Carol Quigley in his book, Tragedy and Hope, which is a great big, thick 1300 page book that no one should ever have to read. So there's cliff notes for it called <laughs> Tragedy and Hope 101. I got it floating around here. So here it is. <laughs> Tragedy and Hope 101. You just read this book and this is a summary of the Anglo-American establishment and Tragedy and Hope all in one book. You can actually go to joeplumber.com and read it for free. So he sells the book. He has an audio book. It's impeccable. I've known Joe for, well, since he wrote this book, <laughs> we became friends. I was like, this is awesome. The cliff notes. Yeah. And then um, I helped him produce the audio book. So very consumable, <laughs> 200 pages. You can read it in a Saturday afternoon and blow your mind about understanding the world. Quigley hides that information in the 1300 pages. And he says on page 52, look, there's this banking group and it's like, you know, uh, Montague Norman from the bank, bank of England. Helmar Schacht, who is Hitler's banker, who was born in Brooklyn, by the way, Helmar Horace Greeley Schacht, and the, <laughs> they're working with the Rothschild family. And I was like, what? This is crazy, because if the Rothschilds existed, college would have taught me this. I worked on Wall Street. Co you know, that would have taught. No, actually, there's a lot of there's a lot of hidden history right outside the public narrative. So I started to be incredulous and that incredulity led me into more and more and more of informa information that's not a rabbit hole, it goes nowhere. It very much goes somewhere. It goes to the understanding of the past, present and future of the world we're living in. So with that, I was like, there's something here, not nothing. So I just dedicated more time to look up every reference and all the things that Gatto talks about in his book. I wanted to get the source materials and understand it to the nth degree. And I started podcasting because I was, I was learning so much. I was like, I have to share this with people. Yeah. So my first podcast back 2006 is when I started. Nobody was podcasting back then, but I had a practical thing I was trying to do. I was trying to communicate a huge amount of information to the public. I don't know how to do that. Or, I mean, I guess I could have taught a course, but I didn't know how to like get that. There was no course infrastructure back then. So I just podcasted, <laughs> right? Seemed like the thing to do. Some of those podcasts, the episodes can be up to like, I think 12 hours in that first series. So it's, and it's all just 
databasing and, and time capsuling information for people in the future so you can have an understanding of what happened in the past better than we did when we grew up. So it's like a service to humanity artwork with a practical yeah. application purpose, right? It's, it's uh, what do they call it? It's uh, conceptual art with practical application. It was well put. Well, I've been doing this for a long time. So I've had to think yeah. about what I do and how to showcase it and frame it. So um, about this time, I came across, I had a buddy and I was doing all these like network diagrams and stuff. And a buddy came by, where's this book? And he said, I just got back from an art exhibit in New York City. And there's a guy who's drawing stuff just like what you're doing. Same kind of research. And he shows me. Uh, here's the uh, updated book. This isn't the one he showed me, but okay. this is the book. It's called Global Networks by Mark Lombardi. Now, Mark Lombardi, this cover has Salim bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, George W. Bush, Harkin Energy. It's like the, and it folds out too. It's like really, wow. it's like a dual-sided dual uh, big piece, right? So these are great big wall murals in museums in New York City that now nobody can see anymore, right? Uh, the Whitney Museum, the Skull and Bones Museum, mm -hmm. they have some. And there's another museum that might not be good to say which one, but they also <laughs> are not letting people see it. Now, what I can show you is Mark Lombardi allegedly died of his own hand on 3-2-2-2000. So about a year before 9-11, right around the time that Bush is getting into office, that sort of thing. He dies on 3-2-2, March 22nd. Well, he has a whole bunch of skull and bones money narco terrorism trafficking throughout all his work right so did he kill himself on that date or did the people he's tracking leave that as a signature of don't go here right see these are all his his drawings now this is a rare book you can try to get a copy of it it's not easily found anymore and that's because uh let's see here i want to show you who publishes this book up did i just lose my webcam i did i did it let me click a button mm -hmm. for you it's worth yeah. the way it's a found oh, well that's that's the other camera now you guys are getting to see uh how i do production ah, uh, where's ld ld get in there here <laughs> yeah right right L, uh, yeah ld can save my ass right now all right so let me zoom in and this is brought to you by the judith rothschild foundation <laughs> Now, I didn't know who Judith Rothschild was back in the day. This is printed by in 2003, right? So my buddy's basically saying, hey, there's another, there's an artist who's caught on to what you caught on to, and he's got drawings, and he's really famous now, but he's dead. And here's the people mm -hmm. who own his stuff, right? And I thought, oh, look, and now I whacked out uh, my exposure over here. Give me just a second yeah, and see if I can fix time, that, man. It's fascinating. You know, in OBS, I will hit properties, and then I will hit configure video, and then I think I just have to pull down the gain. Somehow in Logitech, the gain slides up for no reason. There we go. Now we're rocking and rolling, and we're back into juicy stuff like Mark Lombardi's Global Networks. So um, there's PDFs of this book online, and it's a fascinating study, but I was just seeing there is relevance to these things I'm digging into and asking questions into, and they do go someplace, not no place. So maybe I should follow the money. And then you get into a whole lot because the money goes a lot of different places. How did the money get here? Who's printing the money? Who do they give it to? What do they build with it? So you see in America, we have robber barons who built the great railroads and subways and these sort of things, right? Well, those people were funded 
by overseas bankers. And when they were done doing it here and in Europe, they moved their operations to the Soviet Union, what would become the Soviet Union, Russia and China, in order to facilitate the infrastructure for those great projects known as the Cold War communism mm. versus capitalism, right? Mm. Same thing was done. And mm. if you look at the pattern, same thing was done in Nazi Germany. While right. we had a great depression here, all the investment money had gone from America over to the Weimar Republic because they, they're super hyperinflation. Mm. Everything was pennies on a dollar. So a bunch of Westerners, specifically Rockefellers, fronted by the Dulles brothers, were in there buying industry, buying industrial parks. You might be interested in who had the like who developed Auschwitz as an industrial park. <laughs> it's not people that came from Hitler's Germany. They're people that live in Rockefeller or work in Rockefeller Center. And I thought that was interesting because after the war, Nelson Rockefeller and Alan Dulles get blackmailed because of their Nazi funding activities. And there's a whole lot of interesting history to that. That book's called The Witness Tree by John Loftus, who's an excellent researcher. And it's based on interviews with the Mossad agent who blackmailed Nelson Rockefeller. So it's a first person source on the story that that Witness Tree book is a is an interesting. Uh, it's a it's it's presented as a novel, but at the back you get the dossier. So they mm. had to tell you the story. Otherwise, like there's no like you don't read the dossier and get the same picture as here's the guy interviewed and here's the story. Right. So those little nuggets, artifacts, they're interesting, but do they connect together? And do they connect together in a like, non-contradictory way? And if you get far enough into it, and you know, Corbett has illustrated this right. uh, beautifully through uh, his documentaries, but World War I conspiracy, if you just watch that and start off with, if you're incredulous, World War I, the official story is a conspiracy. So let's start there. It's just a different conspiracy than what you're told. And it's actually Lord Milner's second war. And Lord Milner worked in the, uh, the uh, uh, under the tutelage of Cecil Rhodes and the whole round table that was there, not only to make the British Empire into a world domination entity, but as a stepping stone to be able to do that, they had to get America back into the empire and they had to have America in the 20th century act as property manager for all their countries around the world. You know, Britain is famous for ending slavery in the early 1800s with William Wilberforce but just on their <laughs> island, but just on their island, not their protectorates, right? Even to this day, they get like the, the commonwealths get 40 votes in the United Nations. America gets one. When they all have the same person on their money, doesn't that kind of mean they're, they're all vote yeah. like that's it's a, so that part right there, that is such the rigged game because that's the UN agenda. That's the ESG. That's Prince Charles, uh, the, the sustainable prince, now KC3, King Chucky III. That's out there rolling with this heavy duty green agenda that they've been cooking up for 50 years. And when you go back and say, well, who cooked up the green agenda and when did this start? It starts in, well, let me just take you to this. Yeah, please. Let me hook you up. Nice. Thank you. You see that? I can. Perfect. All right. Now let me click this and type in unsaid, U-N-C-E-D. United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. So this is the Rio Declaration, 1992. This is called Agenda 21. This is the Agenda 21 meeting. This is where the actual agenda comes out of. But prior to this, you've got the Rio Conference of 1947. So just after World War II, they start setting these up. You have um, the 1987 Fourth World Wilderness Congress. That was pre-Agenda 21. You have this character named Edmund Leopold de Rothschild, 
who's a major proponent of these conferences. You have the, there's another one. Uh, let's see. There was one other meeting before that. I thought it was like 1972 with Grow Harlem Brundtland. But I don't need to find that detail right now. We're not in litigation and presenting evidence. <laughs> I just want to tell you some of these things that are out there. So there's predecessors. There's also interesting videos. Now, Corbett has one called Maurice Strong is Dead. He's part of this story. He's part of the grammar. There's the unsaid uh, whistleblower named George Washington Hunt. And then there's a clip right here. It's probably from YouTube, but it did exist. Edmund de Rothschild talking about Agenda 21 at the unsaid meeting. And this came from the whistleblower George W. Hunt. So we have the clip someplace. We, we know it exists. We just have to go find it, even though it's gone from YouTube, right? And the, these are the people it involves above. These are things that precipitate below. And over here on the side will be reference sources that connect into that, that part of the topic. But you also see this thing called Club of Rome, the first global warming revolution. So 1992 Club of Rome says humanity is the problem. And this helps the unsaid Agenda 21 agenda that we see today, putting farmers out of business, making diesel shortage, uh, making everything go sky high because of artificially created global warming, climate change, carbon monitoring rules, right? Well, that's precipitating down on a lot of people. Maybe a lot of people should ask the question, where does this all come from? Club of Rome is a, a work group, a study group, kind of like Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg they all have their different purposes. The Club of Rome in 1970 wrote a document called The Predicament of Mankind. The Predicament of Mankind. So right here is The Predicament of Mankind. You can go find it on the internet now that you know it exists. It's a 1970 document. And the year later, Klaus Schwab creates the World Economic Forum with the Club of Rome and uh, Prince Bernard the Nazi SS officer from the Netherlands. So this is the document that creates Klaus Schwab's entity. And at the end of this document, there's a tabbed page right here that says the project as described herein is to be undertaken by the club of Rome. And then it's going to be uh, in the subsequent and more ambitious phase, hopefully to be undertaken by a world forum, like a world economic forum that they create a year later. Now, if we were to go to, this whole thing back here is like a Jenga pile of books. And if <laughs> it's I pull awesome. the wrong books, uh, it could Comes be down. really entertaining. But there is a part where um, in the history of the World Economic Forum, its first 40 years, uh, 1973 on a right-hand page, it says Davos Manifesto. And in there, it says uh, Aurelio Pache of the Club of Rome and Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, the aforementioned Nazi SS officer. They got together and they have this manifesto for public private partnerships and that's what you see today that is what the great reset is that's what klaus wrote about in his book right back there there you go it's hard to get the finger <laughs> on it's right over my shoulder and then right. on the other hand you got alex jones's he wrote his great reset book to uh to balance that and so the point would be there's a lot going on that's not on people's radar you're not going to get it on your radar until a shit happens to you like it happened to me or b you watch a cool podcast like this and you proactively say maybe i want to learn about that stuff before it hits me up in the face <laughs> and i have to go through a process of losing everything to slowly build it back over 20 years maybe you don't want to take my exact path maybe you just want to watch georgia's show here and like take some of the stuff and look it up maybe yeah. 
maybe don't believe anything I'm saying. And you would do yourself the best favor by being incredulous and looking this document up right now and reading it for yourself. So that's kind of how I got familiar with the books and documents in the various libraries in this studio. So there's uh there's a ton to learn. It's not all necessary to go forward. Like I said, you could read tragedy and hope one Oh one and get the gist. And then if you had a second book, you want to like a PhD in that subject, you read Sean stone's new world order, a strategy of imperialism, which looks kind of like this. If I straighten it out and I wrote the forward for this book. So there's a, a 30 page primer that I wrote and, uh, it, it lets you know if, in case you didn't read tragedy and hope 101, here's what you need to know before you can engage with what was Sean's Princeton PhD history thesis. And, uh, it's wall to wall. I, I wrote the forward cause this book's unassailable. Like what he's, what he's putting in here is the obvious facts of the matter. And, um, yeah, people just haven't got to the reading part yet. And I think there needs to be a movie of it. That's the other thing. So we got projects going into the future still. Yeah, well, he's got the pedigree for a movie right there. You know, I uh, it's fascinating, Richard. I sometimes I wonder. Like, I I think people can be proactive. I think it's very, you know, forward thinking, and people who are curious should definitely begin. People who are critical thinkers should start doing your own research. It, I have found, and at least it seems to me, that it takes being screwed. It takes being slapped in the face. It takes losing. It takes a tragedy for you to have some hope. It takes a tragedy for you to start digging down and being like, why is this happening to me? What the hell is going on here? How come they took all my money? What, why am I, why is the IRS coming after me every single year? Like, what do I do? What did I do? You know, and all of a sudden you start figuring out like, oh, that's that, that thing I thought was bullshit. That's not even true. Why did I think that? And then the next thing you know, you're, you're buried in a book for a, a month, a year, two years, five years. And then all of a sudden you find Richard Grove over here and you're like, this guy figured it out, man. Let me, let me try to find this guy and talk to him. And it's, it's a beautiful story. I'm, I well, it's not that I figured it out. Let me just, let's, let's right. build upon that. Okay. I was leaving a trail of breadcrumbs of what I was finding that other people right. had already figured out for the most part. And then by getting enough of these puzzle pieces, you're like, Hey, I think there's a picture here. And then you mm. can see over here, there's a couple pieces missing. What might go there? And do you have to go into the research. So I got to the edge of what that which exists. Like as a, for instance, when I was interested in the, that Rothschild family that I didn't believe existed because they would have been in the Forbes 500 or whatever. There's lists of famous like right. rich people, right? They're not in there. They actually are. They're in the dynasties with the Rockefellers and multi-generational wealth, but they don't like advertise that to the people, right? So it's like they exist and they're off the radar and they are kept off the radar. Like no one's putting them on the radar. So I was like, what books out there exist? Cause I don't want to read stuff on the internet. I don't know what to believe in there. It's too hard. But if I find a book from hundred years ago by count Egon Corti, a two volume set on the history of the Rothschilds, maybe I should read that. So I acquired 45, 50 biographies, autobiographies, authorized by the family, unauthorized by the family, everything. What's out there to be known. I got Neil Ferguson, <clears throat> not the guy from the pandemic. Cause it's pronounced the same way. Neil Ferguson's a Harvard history professor who wrote two volumes set uh, Rothschild's money's profits. And there's another volume. I forget what the title of it was. Cause it wasn't that good. He, he's a, he's an excellent storyteller, but he's not the one to tell you where the, where the, the facts are. Like I'm, I'm more about going through the archive, finding the fact, and then telling people here's where that fact is in the archive, go read it and find more. Right. Neil Ferguson's like, I will get access to all this stuff. 
but then I'll sanitize it and tell you the story over here. So you can't go find the facts of the matter. You just have to believe him. And even though he's authoritative and he has access, I don't believe him. I want the facts. So I spent years in the Rothschild online archives and you can go to just type in Rothschild family archive and you're going to find the official site. And there are several of these. There's the one in French. There's the one in English. Um, and it has all family artifacts in there for public viewing, the ones that are allowed right. for public viewing. Right. And even from their official timeline, it is so mind blowing. I've done presentations just based on their official timeline, just going through their archive. Like, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like uh, <clears throat> they build their wealth with Napoleon's scourge of Europe. They protect wealth by sending it to Nathan in London. He puts it in with the East India Company, makes a bunch of money. And then when Wellington and the British government's broke, Nathan has all this gold from the guy they didn't pay back yet. And hey, let's save you know, it's Wellington and make it Napoleon's Waterloo. And let's maybe have advanced knowledge of that with their advanced courier pigeon system and encrypted communications that they tell you all about in the timeline. Right. So now you can get a picture of they gained power. Then they saved the Bank of England and they bought the Royal Mint that they're making the gold bullion now <laughs> by 1828. They set the gold prices. Um, it was uh, I forget the name of the, the house where they did it from. But for 100 years, gold prices were set in uh, the London. What's it called? New House or something like that. They, there's a name for their their place. Just type in where gold gold prices fixed. So these things aren't conspiratorial. They shouldn't even be controversial. They should be common knowledge. And without their funding, you wouldn't have Western society as you know it today. So I'm not hating on it. I'm just saying, I, I, like, quickly, they, they play a sufficient enough and substantial enough role in history. And it's meaningful enough that I think it should be known. I don't know why they're trying to keep it secret, but hugely powerful. And then I hear really smart people like on the internet, like Lex Friedman and other people. And they're like, Oh, there's nothing to see there. There's nothing there. Right. I'm like, well, if you just went to their page on Wikipedia and you saw the 30 estates that are bigger than any presidential palace you've ever seen, right? Like it's just grandiose list of yeah. estates and former estates that they've donated to the national trust that they still live in. So it's just fascinating. And people complain about King Chucky the third and he must, you know, draw off the, you know, the wealth of the people and this sort of stuff. Like he's like living at the, on the taxpayer dollar. There's a whole lot of that going on and it's not limited to the Royal family, but the Royal family and the banking families, they got together and they made a whole 20th century with America as the butt of the joke. So, and Americans don't see that. They see Great Britain as their ally and there was never any need for a revolution or, I mean, the King's there, you know, an American has married into the Royal family. They have done things in the past 60 or 70 years to like heal that, that, that wound to bridge that divide. And I have a cartoon posted on the wall in the, in the studio behind me. It's called hands across America and it's uncle Sa un uncle Sam and John bull shaking hands across the Atlantic, burying the hatchet, right? So these ideas of ameliorating America with Britain and like brushing away the history of the revolution and reteaching American history in a way that we're friends with Britain and we are just part of the five eyes nations of English speaking peoples to carry out the English speaking idea of domination of the world, just like Cecil Rhodes and these guys said 110, 20 years ago. Man, it's deep. You know, it, there's so much in there, man. I'm so thankful to talk to you. It's interesting. I talked to Joseph Sassoon yesterday, and he's written a book called The Sassoons. Yeah. And it, it seems clear to me that 
you know, he makes reference to the Sassoons being the Rothschilds of the East. And while yep. you can definitely talk, you know, you can see. Oh, that's true. I mean, right. so just right there, that's a claim okay. made made by the person you interviewed. But the source of that claim is uh, it's actual and factual. It comes from the Jewish encyclopedia. If you just look up Sassoon in the Jewish encyclopedia, it will say that they're the Rothschilds of the East. Of, yeah. And he was the opium warlord of Baghdad and that. Uh, they started doing trade and it was, you know, part of the U.S. cotton system going to Manchester, England to be made into textiles to go to Madras and pick up some opium balls. And they have these these uh, an not animations, but uh, illustrations of the opium warehouses in India. If you just look it up, opium warehouse, India, you'll see like a hundred foot ceiling. Just as far as you can see, it's like the Ark of the Covenant, like that that warehouse at the end. East India companies dumping all that opium now over in China to get silk tea and just uh, grand theft world in that country for a hundred years. So uh, Sassoon's. Oh, I didn't press the button over here. Let's see. It's a little blurry there, Rich. Can you, is, can it focus a little bit more? Is it too blown up? Is that what you're saying? I, I think so. Or is it like too small I, print? I think it's too, like I can read the, although David Sassoon did not speak in the white text box. However, when, when I'm looking at the brain, Everything yeah. is, it's real, real blurry. Maybe, All right. Maybe. Well, what I can do is I could send you my screen capture from after, like I'm, yeah. I have an OBS recording of this. So you'd have a clearer picture. Yeah. Mine awesome. over here. Yeah. Um, all right. So the idea is uh, they're involved in the opium trade. The fascinating thing is that David Sassoon, I think it's this one, married in, into the Rothschild a couple generations later. Uh, let's see this one married into the Rothschild family. And mm -hmm. so today, there's an actor called Jack Houston, mm -hmm. who's uh, related to John Houston, Angelica Houston on one side, but on the other side, he's related to the Rothschilds and Albert Abdullah David Sassoon from the opium Sassoons of Baghdad. So it's fascinating how Hollywood today has people with histories that go back so far into like this hidden uh, history of uh, the opium production and uh proliferation around the world yeah i i, I thought right, it was so I'll, get so, off. I'll jump off that since it's not clear for you coming through it's beautiful and i want everyone to know that you have the brain there i think if they go to the grand theft world is it the autonomy course or the grand theft world podcast people can go and actually see that for themselves if they go to your site can't they if you go to grandtheftworld.com there's a pop-up for my freedom vault and in mm -hmm. there there's a free membership for grand theft world podcast and all the facilities so it's a library of cognitive liberty and in there's all my productions and my history blueprint so yes there's a way to get to see it for free and uh, right. see see behind the paywall without taking any risks yeah so when i it was interesting because when i when i spoke with joseph sassoon he is a professor i'll give you one guess which school that he's a professor at oxford university the one, the the one in America, the um, Georgetown, right? The uh, oh, Georgetown. The, there you go. That where Carol Quigley taught. Yeah. There you imagine that. Yeah. And so you know, it, it's well, so it's interesting. That's a Jesuit university too. So there's another interesting oh, underlying theme of maybe narco trade over hundreds of years. Yeah, maybe. it's. I'm. It was really. I'm, I'm excited because I I learned from you and Tony and LD when you guys are doing the marathon of a podcast, which is the Grand Theft World podcast on Sundays. How you guys enter things into the record, and I love the way you do it. And because you guys did it during my interview with the with Joseph, I was able to tell him, you know, 
reading your book, Joseph, is fascinating, and it is a fascinating read. I recommend everybody check it out. I, I, I was able to enter into the record. You know, Joseph, the Sassoons and the opium trade seem a lot like the Sackler family today, to which I was met with just silence. You know, <laughs> but it was a nice little intro into the record right there. I thought, yeah, you're, you're only allowed to recognize things of the past or like in the case of Jeffrey Epstein, you're only allowed to talk about his sex crimes after 2002 because it's, it's inconvenient <laughs> right. to Iran Contra and BCCI and a whole bunch of other things that happened that he was involved in to like take it back any earlier. So like there's a, just like when uh, Amy Roback on the, the, the leaked video where she's like, we had right. the Epstein story in, in back Buckingham palace called and threatened us. I'm like, well, what's that all about then? Yeah. When the palace calls on behalf of somebody that they've known since the seventies, what do you think that means? Cause that's when the palace was introduced to Epstein. Yeah. So there's a lot of how, dirty baggage there for those people. There's so much. And how, how important is Whitney Webb's books? She's, I saw her on the Glenn Beck yesterday, but before that, I saw her on the Grand Theft World podcast, a back-to-back -back episode. How important do you think that those books are going to be in the record later? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of books written on those topics and the people that she covers in there, with the exception of Epstein. He's kind of like the new addition to it, but right. most of it, the, the whole first volume is the history of intelligence agencies and organized crime working together since 1941. And I showed her, I'm like, they started in London in 1938 and brought it to the Americans. So uh, Meyer Lansky was already working with MI6 and was already blackmailing Hoover prior to them coming over and bring, like they brought it over with them. And then they set up British security coordination and Nelson Rockefeller's Rockefeller center. And so the British started committing sabotage and assassination against Americans who might have supported America getting into the war on the side of Germany. Now, this is similar to what the British had to do in World War I, because at the time of World War I, a third of America was related to Germans. And we weren't really like about going to fight, you know, uh, the former relatives or whatever. So there had to be the Hun propaganda and the babies on the bayonets and all this kind of stuff that MI, not MI6 per se, but psychological warfare on behalf of the British Empire. Uh, and because we speak the same language, dude, it's so easy for them to just like permeate <laughs> the storyline into our society. And like even go back to the time of George Washington, Washington found himself up against an empire. He was fighting the most powerful empire on the planet. And so he had to create his own, his own intelligence core, his own encryption, his own courier systems, his own spy development and all these sort of things. Espionage, like it was new. Honest people don't get into that stuff. We don't right. need, you know, right. but the skullduggery that keeps pressing in on freedom says some people have to go and push back. And I think that's also uh, part of the story that there was never any effective pushback because people weren't able to see the skullduggery. It's like Pearl Harbor happened and all of a sudden we're in World War One on the side of, of Britain. No one stopped to ask, hey, did, did maybe their spies, did they know about that ahead of time and not tell us? The answer is yes. Well, how do I know that? Because that's that's an incendiary thought right there. Well, I wrote a, I read a book. I don't have it here. Uh, it's called The Double Cross System. Uh, it's the war of, uh, it's World War II. It's the MI6 director from World War II, John Cecil Masterman with a foreword by Norman Pearson of Yale, who's also in the CIA MI6 uh, Anglo-American establishment, X2 is what it was called. So from on high, the people running intelligence for Britain say, we had, uh, we had Agent Tricycle, we had Agent Garbo, we had agents in, the, in the J Japan 
in Germany. And uh, our agents from Japan brought this questionnaire. They want to know how to bomb Pearl Harbor and what targets should they hit and all this sort of stuff. Um, that's August 1941. So the British knew the Japanese were and they they helped them that the British actually brought this to J. Edgar Hoover. They're like, look, uh, we have some intel. They don't say it's from their own spies, though. Yeah. So they give it to Hoover in a way that's incredulous. Like, so he doesn't he doesn't take it as serious. He's like, well, I'm just going to you know file that in a circle circular file. So he doesn't pay attention. Now the British have plausible denial. Hey, we we told Hoover. We just didn't tell Hoover in a way that he understood. Right. Yeah. And and so um, Masterman at the bottom of the right hand page, because I'm like, what? And he's like, well, we couldn't tell the Americans that we had these advanced spies because then they wouldn't trust us. And in this newly, you know, uh, forged relationship, uh, we we just couldn't tell our American cousins that we knew this stuff because we thought maybe they wouldn't get into the war on our side. I was like, what? <laughs> so they lied. So that's a noble lie. It's an example of Plato's noble lie from the Republic. And uh, when our allies are using noble lies to get this country into wars, to kill millions of its citizens, uh, you know, I don't think those things just like, oh, it's been past 60 days, they're expired. That's still heavy history that has to be brought to justice. It has to be adjudicated in the court of public opinion. People need to understand before we go helping these other countries, what are they doing to us? Are they spying very aggressively toward us? Maybe they should, maybe they're not our ally. Maybe we should stop sending money there. And to have those discussions in this public uh, culture today, we get people canceled because then yeah. you get to know who you can't criticize. Like uh, that's who's ruling you. The All people, there. when when you, when you say something and they shut off banks and they shut off like corporate access, I don't know if, if you're so wrong and you're so weak, why do they have to do that? Right. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, there's a great book. Um, uh, there's a great book where Eric Schmidt goes and interviews Julian Assange. It's called when Google met WikiLeaks. I recommend everybody check it out. And um, in there, Julian says he, he's talking to Eric Schmidt in this form of a dialogue and they're talking about censorship and Eric Schmidt is, I'm just paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of, you know, we're able to, we're able to get the word out because we control the information. And Julian Assange fires back with, well, you know, Eric, censorship is like the ultimate form of weakness. And in my mind, I could just see Eric Schmidt like, huh? You know, and Julian's like, yeah, that's the ultimate form. That means you are so weak that the very sound, the very uttering of a name can cancel you. And so I, I, that always stuck with me. And I just thought to myself like, wow, the more censorship you see, the more vulnerable the government is. And so often people see this authoritarian regime with a hammer of censorship, but might it be more applicable to see them as like a glass hammer or something like that? Do you think that this censorship that we're seeing today while very powerful and has the ability to change the mind of the masses, is it possible that it is also a form of weakness? Um, first, can I get the censorship course. is the ultimate form of weakness was the quote, right? I wanted to make sure I wrote it down. I'm, properly. I'm, it's not exactly that, but no, that's it's, good t-shirt material okay. right there. Okay. I'm yeah. Thinking. That's, that's something <laughs> yeah, that's totally. billboard that's sprayed yeah. on a wall with stencils. Like that is something I think that needs to be out there. So yes. I was just capturing that little nugget that you parade there. Um, I think that they don't get it. They don't understand the Streisand effect and that right. when they censor stuff, when they say Kanye said some mouth sounds like he made like he first <laughs> off, first off, Kanye, Kanye West, now known as Ye, is the richest black man since Mansa Musa and Kanye didn't have any slaves. Right. So let's start there. 
Now, is he the richest black man this week? Uh, you'd have to check because in the past couple of weeks, I'm willing to bet his net worth has gone down a little bit. Now, when Adidas cancels Kanye for being a Nazi, I say, who is Adidas? Who is Adi Dossel? <laughs> right? Was Adi Dossel in the Nazi party? Did his brother make Puma? Right? These are facts of nature that we can easily reference out there. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just asking the question. Who is Adi Dossel or who was? Is he still alive? Um, is it a corporate position or is it his personal position? Because it's like the Prince of uh, uh, Netherlands, Bernard, helping to make the uh, World Economic Forum. It's like corporate Nazism right in front of us. You know, and so there was uh, Ari Shafir. Uh, There's a couple bits he did on stage where he found out from the crowd that Kanye was getting canceled from J.P. Morgan. And then there was another bit that he did in, in retort to that. But, um, yeah, I mean, J.P. Morgan didn't cancel Epstein. But they canceled Kanye West. What's up with that? And so he says, J.P. Morgan must be Nazis. Right. So he so he, he went on this rant. That's his claim. Uh, I don't know if they've canceled Ari Shafir yet, but I'm sure he doesn't need their banking expertise over there at J.P. Morgan. <laughs> he called him Jesus Paul Morgan. He's Jesus Paul Morgan's Nazis. It was hilarious. So I like the fact that this cancel culture does give rise to more comedy. Right. And like wittier comics and like right. more Carlin-esque. Richard, like Richard Pryor had an album in the 70s that we're, we can't even say the name of that album. Right. So things have right. changed during at least my lifetime. I've been here nearly 50 years. There's a lot that's going on so far. And what I see is the censorship rise is artificially created and it's artificially created because it's a function of them losing control of people because there's too many channels on the Internet. And even though they cancel people, they don't get that. Well, Alex Jones has more listeners now now that he's canceled yeah. than he ever had when you were just hating on him online, right? Media matters is responsible for half of Alex Jones's audience. Cause over time you just see, Oh, maybe I should see what the guy's actually saying instead of the little hit pieces. And then they're hooked over here on the real information instead of like the hyperbolized out of context clips that make the man look so bad on occasion. Right. That's kind of the media matters milieu. That's what they do. They take things and kind of twist them and make people upset about them so that they have ideas about reality that do not reflect the reality and that's control and it's it's right side it's it's uh, the sidecar is assumption if they can just get people to as assume that what they're hearing from all these different well i heard it on 10 different places it must be true okay they don't know about repetition over there and you know psychological warfare okay so in a world where the other side is very advanced in these techniques of psychological warfare and manipulation of people's attention and things like that, I think caveat emptor, maybe we should raise our intellectual capacities and intellectual self-defense instead of hoping that they're going to give us a better fact checker or give us some better centralized authority of protecting us from bad information. I mean, all they do is expose us to bad information. They don't care about us. They care about yeah. preserving their bullshit narrative that is so fragile yeah. It, it, any fact, any piece of media, any TikTok video could crack the shit out of it. So they're very <laughs> scared and it's a sign of their weakness. And the more totalitarian they get, the more people are going to stop, look around, see what's going on and make a move. So they're yeah, like agree. expediting their own demise. The, the empire is crumbling under its own weight and they're trying to get to te te technocracy, track trace database robots drones control human beings eugenics depopulation before we can wake up 
to their plan. Yeah. And they've taken a yeah. hundred and some years to make this happen. They're not changing it anytime soon. They're not going to come up with a plan B anytime. They're doing this thing. And if we just head them off at the pass, so to speak, use a little spaghetti Western ease, uh, <laughs> we can get, we can take it. We could take right. it to the limit. We could take the fight to them intellectually by just getting people to stop believing the untruths. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to think about. And I, it's, it's, this whole, when I was watching Kanye or, or yay, I, I got into a debate with multiple people on a podcast that I do on Sundays. Cause I had mentioned to them and I was the only one that thought this, imagine that is that am I hearing the echoes of a new civil rights movement right here? Like maybe not the content of what Kanye was saying was similar to Dr. King or Farrakhan, but I think the message of my people are in pain. What I see around me is oppression. Like, that's what I hear. That's what I see in the way he's saying it. And I see him going straight to the horse's mouth and saying, you, Lex, I'm here to talk to you. What is this problem here? Like, to me, I, I found it really inspiring. And I I could see why the, the the when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. And I could see why people are losing it at the top. Like, let's get rid of this guy. Let's get him out of here. But it is the Streisand effect. And I, I think that Kanye is doing one of the most important things he can right now. He made so many great points where he's like, you know what? So many people like me have had to lose everything before they spoke up. I have everything and I'm willing to lose it now. Like that is a huge move. And it harkens back to your story about being a whistleblower. Imagine knowing what you know now and being in that position. Imagine having the courage to stand up, even though you have a billion dollar paycheck coming to you and saying, you know what? I don't want that anymore. I want the truth now. So I, I think it's powerful, man. I'm glad he did it. And I wish more people would see what he did in that way. Is it too far of a bridge for you to see him as a social rights leader? No, I don't think so. And I think if Dr. King could lay, lay down a rap like Kanye, then he would have had a lot more <laughs> listeners and maybe the FBI and the government wouldn't have shot him. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the, if you look at the facts of the matter, again, the, the King family won in court in civil court right before the year 2000, and it was found that the government and not the guy they blamed was involved many such cases. Cause you know what? Uh, people in power are willing to kill to get the things they want and stop being a little kid and acting like they don't let's start there. So there's the Kanye situations. Let's it's layers. So let's peel the right. onion. Okay, let's do it. He said some mouth sounds. People got upset. Right. I don't agree with everything he said. Right. That means that's free speech. The free speech is for people you disagree with that. Yeah. You are like, I can't, I can't No. So that's the spectrum. Now, some people are saying what he's saying is so dangerous to a particular group of people. Well, is that true historically? No, because how were the Nazis funded? Oh, you guys didn't go after the bankers after Nuremberg. Actually, the bankers cut a deal. And Nelson Rockefeller is in the middle of that blackmail. Again, read the witness tree. You can see how like the, the things really work. So for people being programmed with emotional responses and reactions right. to like his mouth sounds is wrong in the first place. Let's cut through that. Ben, uh, the word anti-Semitism is so overused and so ill-defined. It means Aramaic, um, Arabic, or Hebrew. That's the Shemitic languages from the tribe of Shem from the Bible. Right. So let's just break it down. So, you know, talking about one group of people out of those three is not anti-Semitic questioning these sort of things. Now, did Kanye do it eloquently? No. Did he do it with facts and evidence and put on a Ph.D. presentation? No. 
did he make a song out of it no that was his mistake ari shafir brought that to the table he's like he would have done like bang he could have had a banger song and we would have all been dancing to it but no he said it he's not you know he was out of his his forte as they right. say um so i i don't agree with what he said there are some points to what he said that need to be looked at though i agree with his right to say mouth sounds and like everyone else right, right. we all have that freedom of speech the problem is i was I was taken in as many other people were by the official. He's just anti-Semitic and this and that. If you actually look at the texts that he shared from Harley right. Pasternak, that is something which I think should be investigated. I think everyone needs to reconsider their position in light of that. When that type of power is being wielded from somebody who's a, a trainer no he's a celebrity handler and he's trained yeah. by the canadian government which is british that's that's the british empire system right there queens on their money canadian intelligence system you know it's the same group of people you and cameron that did the uh mcgill university mk ultra projects that's the part of government that trained that guy that's the trainer to the stars that they had to edit his page heavily after it came to light right because mm -hmm. he's training bono like what is he doing well, he tested all sorts of drugs experiments, and he says in the video that because he's in the military, rules didn't apply, so they could just dose people and see what happened. That sounds MK Ultra ish to me. Yeah, and when when that happens to be the guy who called the loony bin for Kanye and said incarcerate this guy, and then he threatens him, I will do this again, send you back to Zombie Land, and play dates with a kid won't be the same. I don't know if that's if that's not blackmail. I, I'm not sure what that is, but that's some sort of illicit control. I don't know if it's covered in Whitney Webb's two volume set, but a lot of things like that are by this super mob that she describes. I don't know. Maybe Kanye. I I I think if I could get Kanye's address, I would gladly send him a copy of each volume of Whitney's books. I would highlight them and mark the pages and be like, "Have at it, bro." <laughs> Here you go. Here's something to sink your brain into. Cause it's going on and it affects everybody and Epstein's client list and all that stuff. Like we, they can't find that. They can't find the, the body cam for the Paul Pelosi thing, but they got, you know, all this other stuff that, you know, they just make up out of thin oh, Russia gate. Oh, Russia yeah. or Zelensky. Anything's having to do with Zelensky. <laughs> Come on. man. Yeah. That's, it's so fascinating to think about. I, I, you know, I know we're we're kind of coming up on an hour, Richard. Are you are you okay for a minute, or do you got some other engagement you got coming on? Yeah, because I want to talk solutions. I feel like uh, we've per purveyed enough of the uh, the weird and wonderful facts of our right. objective reality that exists, and they're inconvenient to the narratives. I think we've you know we've put that peg in the the tree there, so we can hang another hook here and uh, maybe talk solutions. Okay. I want to tell, I want to share with you what I'm doing mostly yeah, because I'm excited about it. And I've been inspired by the grand theft world podcast by you, Tony, LD, Stephanie, the whole team you got over there. I think you're doing a great thing. And after I, after I share you what, what I've been doing because of that, I would like to get into what you're doing with autonomy and the grand theft world podcast and, and how we can reach out. So I started up this podcast about three years ago and it was basically me reading books out loud online. It was me learning out loud in a way. Yeah. And it was, it was such an amazing, even though I felt as if I was just talking to myself, you know, I, I um, even though I felt like I was just talking to myself, I began to get a few comments here and there. And I began to make a few friends and a few connections. And within a year or two, all of a sudden there, there were podcasts where I would get 
you know, 15,000 downloads in a month. And I'm like, oh my God, look at this, this is so amazing. <laughs> and then this thing started happening, Richard, that, that has never really happened before. I started building this network and I met with another, another guy that, that is producing things and he started his own podcast. And then I, I met up with another guy who owns a farm on Maui and he's, he's bringing people out to hunt pigs and teach masculinity. And then all of a sudden, like, it's almost, even though it didn't happen where I woke up one day and I had these people around me, I find that it almost felt like that. And now I find myself in this position where I, all of a sudden I, I can't even get back to all the people that want to come on the podcast. And it's such an amazing feeling. And it stemmed from this three years of just grinding, 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 reading books, learning. And it, I feel like once you start getting enough good information in, pretty soon that begins to come out. And I want to say thanks because I learned a lot from the John Taylor Gatto, from the Grand Theft World podcast, from you and your team entering stuff on the record. That being said, I, I, I'm really hopeful for the future, and I want people to learn about what you have going on with the autonomy and what you're teaching about entrepreneurship and how people can get this into their life. Well, I think that you just demonstrated for your, you know, you you are describing how you went from like. And this is everybody's kind of struggle. You go through a society where you're taught to be dependent and you haven't yeah. developed the muscles mentally or physically kind of to support yourself, right? What you described there on your, I'm just trying to learn, oh, I might as well share with other people. Oh, that attracts some network effect. And then it builds value over time. You're describing your own development of autopoiesis. And uh, once you learn how to self-regulate, self-discipline, self-heal and build what you need to move forward, you're autonomous. And that helps to uh, stand on your own and be calm, cool, collected enough to be able to lend a hand or, or a good idea or a word of kindness or some patience or some gratitude to somebody else that you encountered during the day. And so I see my world as like, it's, the world's a big place, but it's also a right. small world. There's only so many people here and there's only so many people I interact with. So do I have infinite abilities to bring patience and persistence and kindness and generosity and all these other aptitudes? Yes, I can be wealthy in those things, even if I don't have any money or know what my offer is to the market yet. So I will make myself wealthy in these things. And then what do I have access to? Oh, look, there's books. I know how to read. Yeah. I can internalize information. And then I'm going to bump into people to whom that information is valuable. They don't have it. They never heard of it. They need it now for, to solve a problem. And now I can become an instrumental, positive, volitional aspect of problem solving in whatever modality I'm doing, right? As a dad, as a husband, as yeah. a colleague, as a mentor or coach or a teacher, I can bring excellence and solve problems almost on demand. You know, I'm, I've developed a good deal of skills. I had a good set of methodologies and mentorship 30 years ago when I learned these skills mm. and I've found them useful every day ever since I attained skills of, of self-reliance and autonomy. So it became a natural part of like uh, the journey that once I knew enough, like Gatto told me about the problem, but learning about the problem is not the solution. So mm, what do we, night. what, what did they take out of education to make it schooling free will? All right. Uh, voluntary association, critical thinking, creative problem solving, knowing how to use our five common senses to sense objective things in our reality to inquire about them, to gain knowledge, to be able to pass that knowledge on to each other through wisdom. And then like, those are the basics. And then on top of that, you would need how to formulate your offer to the market as an employee, as an entrepreneur, as a freelancer, and how to, uh, to work a marketing plan of one to many 
to get enough yeses to say to stay self-reliant. And if you don't know how to do that in a, a corporation setting, you'll eventually get fired. But if you don't know how to do that in an entrepreneur setting, you'll crash and burn. So there's different sets of risk associated. You know, this one's going to take a lot more focus than just showing up at your cubicle every day, right? But this one also offers a lot more freedom, a lot more decision over every hour in my 168 hours in the week. I have decision-making, yes, no, what I want to do in those periods, right? And if I tweak those and become more productive and proactive in those situations, then I get a lot more of my time back to do things like, reading and other things that I need to get done for my, uh, for my occupation. So really it became necessary. I think it was peace revolution episode eight. There's 93 episodes and some of them are 20, 20 hours long. So back at episode eight, I was like, I need to create a, a comprehensive conscious curriculum that replaces like the schooling system with a true form of self-education. So like 10 years later, I formulated that offer. I made that offer to the market and I called it autonomy. Cause that's the deliverable that you get from going through the, the 12 week training course, uh, learning the methods, most importantly, getting practice with those methods so that they're part of you for the rest of your life. So you can enjoy the same benefits that I've enjoyed from those, those modalities. So I, I made the offer to the market and I thought, well, if 10 people want to take the class, it'll be worth teaching it. And I think the first season we had like a hundred students and we ever since then for the past four years, we've had, uh, I try to keep it. 60 to 75 students per season. That's enough where everyone easily meets and greets each other, but it's not too many new people to meet and greet over the, right. the 12 weeks. And yeah, so it's uh, one of the, it's one of the most invigorating and fulfilling investments of my time that, uh, you know, back in the day, I was just doing what other people told me to do to make money. Now I, I made my own decisions, made my own offer. I can tweak that offer. I can, uh, you know, we do add new functionality every season. So like this season, students get accountability coaches, they get mastermind meetings. So everything in addition to the curriculum that they might need to overcome those extra excuses, negative self-talk, learned helplessness, right. scarcity mentality, right? So yes. it's really like you can provide the curriculum and that's good. But if you had exercises where people can get to use those skills better, and then if you can have a system of customer assurance, the success assurance that makes sure that everybody is able to move forward and gain traction and not spin their wheels and get frustrated and quit on themselves. Because really, that's what I'm teaching people. Right. When you learn that when I know about you that you won't quit on yourself, I know you'll be successful. And so that's the gist over 12 weeks. And then there's a whole bunch of high value skills that I used uh, to make my living in corporate world and as an entrepreneur for the past 20 years. Is that the is that the length of the course, 12 weeks or is What's the length of the if, the, if someone were to join your autonomy course, what would that look like for them? That's a good question. Um, before people can join, you have to complete the obstacle course, which, nice. sounds, which nice. sounds intimidating, but it's really just me giving you transparency so you can right. see everything on the other side of the paywall before you even had to make a decision. So I want anyone getting in to make a fully informed decision. I want them to complete like uh, the obstacle course. So I know their attention span is long enough that they didn't quit on themselves during this. They could probably make it through the course. But if they're like, oh, I couldn't make it through the obstacle course, save your time. You're not ready. It's too aggressive for you. You'd be, you know, it would take you longer than most other students to complete it. The benefit is after the 12 week course, which I teach twice a year. So I do 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off, 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off around the year. Um, they get lifetime membership, lifetime enrollment. Everything in the future that we do, they still have access to. And it's a one-time paywall. 
So once they're in, there's no other fees. There's no upsells. There's no bullshit. And oftentimes students are getting free help from each other, building websites, right. do, doing the basics. Then we have a consulting and marketing company that's all staffed by graduates of autonomy. So there's like 30 people over there. And then we handle corporate clients, entrepreneur clients, mostly freedom-based and right. colleagues of mine-based right. uh, operations. And then for them, as entrepreneurs, they don't have to wear 12 hats. They can focus right. on what they're best at, and they can outsource uh, bookings like I do with Stephanie or editing <laughs> yeah. like I do to LD. Right. <laughs> so by delegating to a team of people with a culture of excellence, integrity, they work and play well together. And um, you're not going to find that by going out on the Internet and getting a web developer and an editor and a copyright. It's, it's going to go kaflooey on you. So I just saw what makes 99% of these businesses fail. And I'm like, let's give like them a chance by providing this comprehensive service that says, we know the obstacles you're going to need to cross in the next couple of years. And here's a map how to get over those obstacles successfully, either with our help or learning how to get your own volunteers. And here's what they need to do. I'm not looking or I mean, we always tell the clients, you're welcome to be a client as long as you want. But we're also teaching you to be autonomous at, at any time. Right. So we we have clients, we get them up, we spun up, they make a good chunk on their launch. And they're like, I got this from here. Great. Call us if you need help. But I got other people that are too overwhelmed and they're like, we want that to happen again, but we don't have the wherewithal to do it. Please do it again for us. And we help them with the marketing and the launch sequences and support and all these things. Yeah, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man a fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Yeah, we're teaching people to fish. <laughs> I love 12, it. Man. 12 weeks at a time in any ocean and around the world, this fishing technique works. And uh, yeah, it's a way of supporting through service. So when we teach sales, it's not pushing, persuading, convincing, conniving. It's asking questions, it's listening, it's finding a problem we can help with and making an offer that helps the other person move forward. And so it's not a predetermined when the person calls, you're going to sell this thing to them. It's like when the person calls, you're going to listen to them and serve their needs. And if they need something our competitor does better than us, we're going to tell them that, you know, so I, I teach the students, if you treat the client like your boss instead of your boss, that's telling you to push the client, yeah. right? Yeah. Treat the, when that, when that boss fires you, that's still your client in the outside world. That's still the relationship you built. And that's what lasts a long time. So always treat your clients like they're your boss because that's really where the money for your paycheck comes from. And when right. you, as a salesperson, learn that upward mobility, there's no one else competing against you. Everyone's competing to do the push, persuade, convince, connive. Let's close them in one call. Let's use techniques. It's all right. cringeworthy. Right. It has nothing, no place in business as I teach it. So this brings up another question. Like I to to get into the to get into the mind of of Richard Grove and understand your philosophy a little bit, I, I'm curious how you see people. Like it, it seems to me that when you reach a certain level, and and I'm still trying to reach these new heights and new levels, and I hope I can attain a higher level the, the longer I continue to grow my business. But it seems to me I'm beginning to see versions of myself in any and everybody that I meet, whether it's a younger version of myself or an older version of myself or a, a version of myself that is committed to this other thing. And I, I, I found it to be a very effective way to look at people and, and communicate with people and interact with them. And like there's this, there's a certain set of questions that begin to arise when you start seeing yourself as a, and other people as a mirror and yourself as an individual or as your own boss that way. I'm wondering about your personal philosophy when you see other people are there some tricks or are there certain ways that you see people that help you interact with them? 
That's funny because Gatto asked me that question one time, and he's like, oh, he's that's like, so awesome. Uh, he's like, you're able to just talk to anybody. He's like, where does that come from? I was like, well, where where I was brought up in Western Pennsylvania, and John was also from Western PA, but he was seventy or thirty, you know, sixty years ahead of me, right? Right. Um, I never saw anybody around me talk differently to anybody right. in any station of life based on janitor or judge, right? There was no. Oh, this guy's a judge. You treat him different than no, you treat human beings like human beings right. and you're, you know, so that was just like a, a natural capacity that hadn't been stomped out of the public yet. Right. Well, when I moved to New York city, that's, it's not like that. Right. So you see, there's also, there's just people ignoring people instead of like, you know, saying, hi, how are you doing? You know, right. Cause there's too many people to do that to you'd never get, get right day. Right. So you make those little adaptations. So first off I see, like, I agree with Gatto genius is as common as dirt. It's all over the place, yeah. but most people aren't seeing dirt as valuable. They're not doing anything with it. They're not making bricks or, or anything out of that. I mean, um, I remember this one time Ernie Hancock, he was telling me a story about explaining how to his grandson that cars come from dirt. In fact, everything around us, it comes from dirt. Right. And I was like, that's such a mind blowing idea. Cause it's, it's true in many ways, right? All the, you know, the bauxite from the dirt turns into aluminum that's in your soda can or, or what have you. Right. So like learning that, that chain of consequence, but I think a lot of people don't see those raw materials in life as opportunity. Sometimes they see them as obstacles or things that need to be swept away instead of something that you build with, right. Or can create yeah. with, or can extract from, right. So it's the victim mentality of never having enough. And that's an right. artificial creation by the schooling and public like status quo, because between your ears, you should have infinite faculties to deal with the real scarcity of objective everyday life. Life has scarcity between your ears should never have scarcity. You should have infinite thinking. You should have, you shouldn't have the word can't in your vernacular. Get that apostrophe T costs you so much in life. How can I do that? How could I do that? What, what would other people do to solve this problem? Then your brain starts thinking, but if you're like, I can't, your brain's like, you're right. right. You're right. Yeah. And I tell students all the time, whether you think you can, or you think you can't, I think you're right. Because it's about what you do between your ears before you even bring it into reality that makes the difference. That is awesome. It's it's so true. I, and it comes back to schooling. It comes back to great teachers like John Gatto. And I, I just I recently spoke with this young. She, she's probably in her sixties, but she's young at heart. And she was talking about this very same thing about can't being the cancer of can. And she says, you know, George. It needs to happen. It needs to happen between the ages of three and five. That's when the child begins to lay down the patterns of thinking. And when they are, when they are just given this blanket of no, don't do that. You're going to get hurt. You can't like just this blanket of negativity that the helicopter parents or parents in general that care sometimes use this wrong kind of terminology. We don't understand that we are laying the foundation for a group of retarded children you know i don't mean that in a in a pejorative no way, it's already like, happened to him i see yeah because to retard it so retard in a noun not a good word Re right. to retard as a verb perfectly acceptable something right. that is being artificially held back and they say we yes. can't have a word for that phenomenon who wants to artificially hold us back come right. on now so <laughs> feel so free to just know that like uh, the word liber uh, in Latin is a noun and a verb. It means book in its noun form, and it means to free or to liberate in its verbal form. The same works for that word to retard. Yeah, it's 
It's all around us. And I really think that right now, when we're talking about solutions and we're talking about moving forward, I really think that that as crazy as the propaganda is right now and it's thick, I think that this is what freedom looks like. For everybody listening to this, for everybody who has this feeling like, hey, something's wrong, but there's these chances. I think what COVID was was a wake-up call. I think COVID was the beginning tremors of the coming earthquake that is going to be the freedom if you want it, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to take a chance, stand up and want to be the best person you can be, if you want to free your family, free your mind and free the future, then I think that right now is the time. There's never been a better time. And what we're seeing is crack developing. You're seeing governments fall. You're seeing the dollar fall. And that means opportunity. That means this is the first time that you can be a free thinker and not be penalized. It means there's people too busy trying to protect their own stuff and now we have this opportunity to become the very people we know we can be. What do you think about that? Well, I think that to blame the new world order or to blame individuals for our right. personal situation is intellectual bankruptcy. And it puts the onus on our oppressors to fix the situation for us, which right. makes us victims. So I'm a stoic minded person. I had the fortune of going through some Latin in high school and I learned about That's stoicism awesome. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool because I don't have to get too excited and I don't have to get too upset. I can just kind of stay in the middle and, and focus. And it, it, the way that you're able to do that is, uh, uh, first off, I'd recommend Epictetus or Seneca or Marcus right. Aurelius. You know, uh, Seneca's On the Shortness of Life. Great short book. Just read it and get it. So the idea is there's a lot of things outside my control. I don't pay too much attention or care for those things. I'm aware that a comet could hit the place or an EMP yeah, or totally. a coronal mass ejection could do a Carrington effect. I understand, but I'm not going to worry about that. Like I, I know how to go out in the woods, make a shelter, make a fire, get food, get water. I know how to survive outside. So that's what we go back to in any of these situations, right? It's like 1800s living. No big deal. If you don't know how to tie a knot or pitch a tarp or any of these things might be intimidating, but you could learn those things on YouTube in the next month and be comfortable for the rest of your life. So maybe get outdoors, do these sort of things. So I try to keep those dramas at bay that I can't control. Right. Now, what am I down to? Personal schedule, discipline, food I put in my mouth, where I get the food, if I can get fuel, these sort of things. Okay, I can manage those things. And I still have a lot of mental time and energy to learn about they, them, those who can easily be named who are trying to take away freedom forever. So- yeah. By saving all that time and energy, I don't have social media. I've never had uh, Facebook, never, never. It's not on my phone beeping at me all the time. I don't have these distractions. My phone is on the ringer off 99.9% .9 of the time, unless there's something really important I need the ringer on for. Otherwise, I just get my alarms. I do 100,000 minutes a year on Zoom and easy peasy <laughs> lemon squeezy. I found a way to deliver the highest value that I have to offer in an efficient and scheduled and methodical manner for those who are interested in up in their game and self-actualizing in this place. So I, I know you're a lover of books and I, I love, I love the cam. I got to, maybe when we're done, you can send me what kind of cam that is, what kind of model that is. I would love to model that particular system. There's a, the, you can get, it's called IPVO, IPEVO. You can pick one okay. up for a hundred bucks. This one now is exorbitantly priced because it's like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or something. So right. it's fancier than what you need is what I'm saying. So I see. Just, yeah, get the hundred dollar one. Rock all day. And you now guys are running. I'm sorry. Yeah, you'd need OBS. We'll do a meeting with I LD see. to show you how to work it in. Okay. 
Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so I see all these books that you have back there. Have yeah. you? Are you an author of, of books? Like I never see you. I don't ever see you talking about your own book. That's because I, I got myself stuck into a book and a film project at the same uh, time, and then uh, I, in the middle of that project during filming of one of the interviews for that project, we got robbed, and then that oh, put that project oh. like thirteen thousand or so in the hole because all mm. the equipment got stolen, and then. Then I had to focus on, okay, so how do I bring in revenue and revenue? I needed to up my offer to the market instead yeah. of just a $15 a month tragedy and hope subscription for research based purposes. I thought maybe I should take this idea for con comprehensive, con com comprehensive conscious curriculum and package it for the public and make the offer. So I started teaching the autonomy course right? Okay. and because of that wild success and how much time I out of my schedule i put into training the students i haven't moved the book project or i've moved the film project forward a little bit and i have moved the book project forward but not as far as i wanted in the time that i wanted so i'm looking forward in future seasons to delegating more so then i can say okay i have a two volume probably it's going to be a three volume set on the rothschild family that i've been working on for you know eight years or five years or something like that and i have to reference it all the time because uh, there's still a whole lot of research that I have in there. That's not anywhere else publicly published. So like when Corbett's like, Hey, I'm going to do world war one. What do you got? I'm like, here, I'm like, you can have unpublished page. Like <laughs> just take this and, <laughs> you know, start weaving it in man. And uh, yeah. Or uh, there's a number of other books that when James is like, Hey, I have a project. I'm like, oh, I got a couple of bangers for you here. Did you read this one? Lord Milner's second war hidden history by Doherty. Yes. It's, it's fun because, you know, what James figured out, James is the English literature kind of guy. So what James figured out early is he writes a script. He writes an article, which becomes a script, and he gives it to an editor, and they, you know, Brock makes it into a movie. And that is a really great production line. Unfortunately, I do a lot more talking than I do writing, and I don't get those scripts in that constant, you know, production. So I'm more likely to do a, a six or seven hour live podcast and get those thoughts out spontaneously, sometimes humorously. And it is a comedy show, Grand Theft World. Officially, for free speech reasons, we it doesn't have to be funny to be a comedy show. You see how we work that in? See how that That's is? That's funny. Ooh. That's funny. It's, I'm playing like a shell game with the powers of be. It's like, oh, it's over here now. So uh, it's officially a comedy show. It's not a news show because I don't have $2 trillion in case my mouth sounds make somebody upset. So I understand how the market's going and we've adapted and evolved along with it without compromising our integrity. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's, they're good. To, the, the shows are both incredible, whether it's Corbett or whether it's Richard Grove and the Grand Theft World podcast or Tony or LD or Steph or any of your team you have there. I, I like, I'm a stream of consciousness guy as well. And I, I love the, the videos that Brock and Corbett do. And they, Brock is really good at translating vision into reality and, so, oh, yeah. so too, oh, yeah. you know what? Like, it's really amazing the way they do it, but I still prefer to have my own, like I'll, I like watching them, but I, I like to create my own movie in my own head. And I think yeah. that when you read stuff, we get back to Marshall McLuhan and we have the hot and cold mediums and it's, you know, I, I really think it's best if we continue to build the world in our own minds and see it rather than have it just put in our own heads that way. Well, you guys see the world for what it is, then say, do. What, what don't I like about that? And how would I add that in there? So I think it's a, it's a bit of both, right? You got to yes. see things for what they are to be able to effectively change them. And then you got to be able to say, uh, not just like a loser and be like, that sucks. You'd be like, that sucks. Here's how to make it better. Here's how <laughs> yeah, to make it better. Totally. is like the winning of that, right? Everyone yeah. has to go through yeah. that sucks. 
but only the winners get to the other side and say, I figured out how to make it better. I went past where other people quit. I found things they didn't find. Here's an answer that's better than what's on the market. That's success. Yeah. And so, you- yeah, that's, that's the metric. Do we think we're doing a good job when we present the week's news? And I, I never look at metrics and stuff like that. That's always trying to base your actions for the future about metric by metrics in the past. It leaves out your whole black swan situation. So I just like to focus on what's forward, take each step with integrity. And then I'm never in a place that I don't want to be. You know, in Gatto's book, Dumbing Us Down, he has like a whole section on semantics. I'm wondering if that is something that you put into the to the autonomy course. <laughs> I didn't put that into it, but uh, we were talking about there's a lot of anti-semantic talk in the past <laughs> couple of weeks. Yes. And, uh, the meaning of words has been abused. And um, so in addition, so here's how I set up the the autonomy course. This is so this is the, this is a good lead in for your audience to see the value. Okay. I not only teach the course, but I said, there's only so many things that I'm qualified to tell people about, right? So if I'm teaching you entrepreneur skills, self-actualization skills, critical thinking, creative problem solving, how to make your offer to the world, but I also want you to know ethics. I have a 12-week ethics course made by somebody who had written a whole bunch of books on ethics and ended up in autonomy. I get it now. I see. I okay. now have a philosophy okay. 101 course because I need I people see. to know philosophy and this season we have Jay Dyer every Wednesday night. Last night he just did another three-hour philosophy uh, lecture. And now people are getting their philosophy with a little bit of entertainment because Jay can do some impressions and voices yes. and things like this, right? Um, uh, holistic self-assessment was the first course that we produced for Derek Bros. So being able to say, well, who am I? What am I here to do? How do I get that done? Like the, the rudimentary bootstrapping steps, right? Or a lot of these people... They don't want to just work and play by themselves. They want to form and form strong bonds and communities and personal membership, private membership associations, mm-hmm. organizations where they can continue to operate during a lockdown, for instance. Yeah. Right. Totally. So we have uh, a course by Stefan Verstappen on how to create and transform communities. And you need a covenant, a charter, you need agreements and things like this for people, rules, basically rules of engagement. So he helps people provide that structure so they don't have a good idea and have it blow up in their face. Right. right. So it's not just about the autonomy flagship course. It's that when people graduate that course, they get access to all the courses in our university of reason, which are all these courses we've created for the things that people need to know how to do today, sooner than later, while we still have electricity as an example, right? (laughs) Yes. Before world war three, it's like, you know, if we, if you want to survive, you're probably going to need the best tools available and not this stuff that they gave you in school. It's like the handouts, the free stuff is never the good stuff. Right. So Yeah. It's true. So we're coming up on an hour and a half. And before you tell everybody what you got coming up, before you tell everybody where they can find you, I have a proposition for you. You don't have to answer right now, but I want you to think about this. I happen to have the hard copy 1993 Bengal Press version of the Adam and Eve story by Chan Thomas. Phenomenal book, by the way. Do you have a copy of this? I don't have a copy of that. Yes, it's going to be beautiful. Then I would like to put up and trade this book for something you think may be equal value. I'll give you some time to check it out, maybe research it, see what you think. And then yeah. you could throw back something my way. I, I think book trades are don't happen far enough. And from a book lover to a book lover, I'd be ecstatic to see what you put up against it. For sure. And I want to compliment your ability to make an offer because this is a key. This is a key that I teach students and it's a key to life. If you're not willing to make your offer and you don't, and you can't take a rejection 
and make another offer right. and take a rejection and take another offer and make a rejection. If you don't have that process, you'll never get to success. And if you don't have your offer to make in the first place, you're never going to get any place. So the first thing you know, need to know is like, what do you want? And then try to find out what somebody else wants and trade, right? It doesn't have yeah. to be federal reserve notes. Like just the trade aspect of our society is so withered and fragile that we just need to strengthen it and start making offers, offers of your own product, offers of your own service, offers to serve other people. What can I do to help? That's an offer. Yeah. You know, what can I help you do today? That's an offer. That's yeah. how you could greet somebody when they come in your place. So all these different things revolve around us having enough competence and confidence to make an offer. And uh, I will uh, explore yours and consider it. Nice. My, my mentor told me, I don't know anybody that takes the first offer. Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. There's a lot of people that take the first offer. Yeah. It's, so he, he has a very select group of people he knows. That's what it tells me. Oh, my grandpa used to say he off she offered her honor he honored her offer and last night he was honor and offer oh geez <laughs> that's too much okay but before we go richard what what do you got coming up uh where can people find you and what are you excited about all right the easy way to find me is sunday night's grand theft world podcast uh grandtheftworld.com has all the links uh we're on rumble and youtube and odyssey and rockfin and bandot video we're all over the place with that show uh, so it's easy to find. It's the week's news summarized and smashed into contextual history. You'll see nothing else like it in this reality at this early date in the 21st century. So we have a monopoly on the uh, the style and uh, it's it's epic, but it's not for everybody. And so for the people I work with during the week, they are business owners, they are entrepreneurs, they are moms and dads and brothers and sisters who are trying to get something done in the world. So I help them with our Autonomy Unlimited marketing company, autonomyunlimited.com. And then on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, I lecture and do Q&As and workouts with the students uh, for season eight of Autonomy. And it's open all year, but we're still accepting for season eight. So it's uh, getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. Very nice. And for those who may not know, the Grand Theft World podcast is a it's a marathon, but you don't have to take it all in at once. I like to break it up through the week. I feel like yes. I'm getting I can get a little bit here, a little bit there, and then finish it off as I go through. But it's a whirlwind. I commend you and LD and Tony and the whole team over there. You guys put together some really great op some some uh op eds on it, and you bring in all these great characters from these different shows that have unique points of views, and it's so worthwhile and it's stuff. You're not going to get anywhere else. So I highly recommend everybody check it out. I don't know how you – you guys are up for like 24 hours doing that show, aren't you? On Sundays, my Q&A student starts at noon. It goes to 4, and then I have a couple hours off, and then I broadcast from 9 p.m. till 4 a.m. And we can't get it done any faster. Like Everybody's right. tried, but it, it, we, what we're telling is the meta story for the week, and it's a time right. capsule for the future, just like my other podcast. So my Peace Revolution podcast is all about history. This is all about current events and analyzing them. So the reality is going by so fast. If you don't stop and see what's going on, you're going to end up in a quarantine camp sometime soon. <laughs> That's true. Man. That's true. Okay. Thanks again, Richard. I really appreciate your time. Hey, and, thanks, um, George. I appreciate this. And it was easy to go over. I'm, I'm late for a meeting now. You made me out of integrity, <laughs> but I'm going to have to go and uh, deal with this now. Thank you so much. This is invigorating. And uh, I hope everyone listening got uh, the best benefit for their hour. Man, I hope so too. The pleasure is all mine. Have a fantastic afternoon. Say aloha to the team for me. You too, man. Peace. Okay. Yep. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.